Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. I'm joined today by Blaise Baino, who is a former graduate student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, specifically its famed History of Consciousness program, which I've been interested in for quite a while. And she, like me, is a recent uh, refugee out of academia and the academic humanities. So I should provide a little bit of intro, but first of all, um, as to you know what uh, what made me want to have this conversation. But first of all, thanks and uh, welcome, Blaze. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here. So we met once before, also over the internet, um, because uh, Blaze hosted a and and organized a conference on the politics of COVID, the concept of biopolitics and biopolitical critique derived from the work of people like Michel Foucault and Giorgio Agamben. And this was a remarkable and and excellent event to participate in. And to my knowledge, it's the only event of its kind that has occurred in the United States uh, that actually tries to critically assess the uh, events of the last couple of years using a, a body of, of critical theory that was specifically uh, calibrated precisely to make sense of these kind of events, the ways that, uh, the ways that, you know, uh, met the practices of medicine and public health intersected with uh, power in the modern world, which uh, became, as we can get into a, a taboo topic in academia, right around the time that Agamben himself issued some fierce criticisms of the mass quarantines being imposed in Italy in early 2020 in a manner quite consistent with his previous criticisms of the war on terror and was roundly pilloried by most of his former allies on the left, if not all of them. And so this uh, created a kind of uh, code of silence around this issue or indeed um, prompted many on the academic left to uh, go in the opposite direction and become great cheerleaders of the new regime of, of mass quarantines, AKA lockdowns, uh, you know, mandatory face masks, later mandatory uh, mass vaccination. And this was obviously a, a, a remarkable event to the few in academia who, uh, who saw clearly what was, what was going on here. And uh, it unfortunately was, you know, became a kind of career suicide to issue any public statements of, of dissent from the new orthodoxy in favor of all of these policies. And so with great uh, aplomb and, and bravery, Blaze and uh, another graduate student who is not with us today, but um, also helped organize this conference uh and you know this was this was quite an impressive uh quite an impressive thing to do uh not only that uh they successfully got 
Mark Crispin Miller, a uh, professor at NYU, longtime uh, practitioner of the, the critique of propaganda, once favored on the left, now uh, largely sidelined in favor of cheerleading of propaganda. And uh, he gave a, a rousing and you know quite incisive uh critique of of what's been going on in the past couple of years as well as you know many others including myself who participated and and tried to examine uh the events of the last few years and i'd say within the group there was a considerable amount of of ideological diversity we didn't all agree on everything but there was a a, a valuable productive and um civil conversation throughout I've been to one other event like this, which was in the UK, where I think there's a slightly less oppressive academic culture on this front. Um, but and and that event I attended in person um, around the same time, I think a little bit later than this online conference that Blaze organized. But you know, these are these are the two events I'm aware of that um, you know really took on this vital task, and so. I remain uh, impressed and, and in awe of, of what Blaze did in putting this together. And so, uh, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, she has subsequently decided to distance herself from academia and, uh, you know, hopefully find less, uh, less stifling and oppressive intellectual environments elsewhere. So in any case, I, I thought we would have plenty more to talk about and, I wanted to just start after my long intro, um, just by asking you kind of what, so you attended um, the History of Consciousness program, which is a very innovative, or at least was a very innovative interdisciplinary program in the humanities and social sciences that, you know, is is really pretty unique as I, as I understand. So I'm first of all, just interested in what, uh, you know, what interests kind of drew you to that program, what... Um, you know, what were you intending to study there and what, uh, you know, what appealed to you about, about what they were doing at, at Santa Cruz in particular? Yeah, well, thank you for all of those compliments, by the way. Um, it's funny, I, I guess it was sort of an act of bravery to organize that conference, but I felt it, it was more of a, uh, a provocation, if you will. I mean, of course, but in any case, uh, yeah, so History of Consciousness, um, the name is so strange. It, uh, the things that go on in that department aren't at all about, like, you know, the study of consciousness. But yeah, it's an interdisciplinary humanities social science program that started in a really cool way back in the 60s. Uh, and one of its most famous graduates was Huey Newton of the uh, Black Panthers. So that's pretty cool. Angela Davis taught there. All of these cool, famous, uh, these famous events and the famous people from the past. Um, I wanted to go to this program because I was very interested and still am interested in uh, Lacanian psychoanalytic theory. Um, and it was simply too challenging to find a department, a graduate department where that was treated seriously or where there were people who even knew about it or studied it, aside from a few English departments. Uh, but the way that those English departments structured their relationship to psychoanalysis was, of course, through uh, literature, you know, um, and I was not really that interested in that. Uh, still, I'm not really interested in that. So for me, it was really like, okay, where's there going to be uh, faculty members and courses that allow me to use psychoanalytic theory with uh, other cultural texts? So I, uh, I actually 
got a master's out of this, which was really good. I'm very thankful that that master's was free. <laughs> so I stopped, but my master's was on um, addiction cinema and psychoanalytic theory. I uh, talked about a few different movies, talked about uh, the addict's relationship or the way, I guess, the way the addict would be characterized through a psychoanalytic lens. And it was ultimately sort of, I guess, problematizing uh, some of the ways that mainstream discourse or medicalized discourse talk about what addiction is through cinema. And um, I was inspired, like this whole sort of uh, methodology that I used was inspired by people like Todd McGowan, uh, Zizek, <laughs> um, and Lee Edelman, who is a queer theorist, English professor. Um, yeah, so that that's what drew me there. Simply, I think, opportunity also because it was the only place I got in. So that was that was helpful. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, I'm trying to think, you know, the other, uh, so Angela Davis uh, taught there for many years. So it had that. Um, Donna Haraway is a very interesting mm -hmm. figure in sort of um, cyborg feminism, I guess, uh, who, in my opinion, I, I'm quite a fan of her earlier work. And I, I don't, I'm not such, so much of a fan of her later work. But yeah. um, she's certainly a, an interesting figure um, who really, you know, did some of the wildest and most creative stuff with sort of science and technology studies and also actually had a background in, in biology, um, you know, did a PhD in biology and then became a sort of critical theorist. Uh, I think, uh, who are, you know, other big figures, um, I believe uh, James Clifford, mm -hmm. sort of a significant figure in anthropology sort of you know bringing critical theory into anthropology um and so it's yeah it's it's known for having brought together very innovative and you know in some cases you know quite controversial people and it it definitely comes out of this moment of this kind of radical uh intellectual ferment of the the late 60s where on one hand you have as you mentioned, you know, someone like Huey Newton passed through there. I mean, you have these these kind of organic intellectuals coming out of these radical movements, right? You have these really interesting figures like Newton, Eldridge Cleaver, and George Jackson, who are, you know, embedded within the, the radical prison movement, the Black Panther movement in neighborhoods in California, but are also writing, you know, quite sort of interesting, um, you know, interpretations of Marxist theory, um, of of psychoanalytic theory in some cases. Um, and so you have sort of a, you know, a, a partial sort of institutionalization of some of what was going on there. And then you also have all these people who are kind of doing weird stuff outside of the existing disciplines. And so they, I, I, I think, get drawn into a program like this as well. And so it, it does kind of come out of this moment where, you know, I mean, many of the things that a lot of people on the right and the sort of more culturally traditional centrists tend to really hate, right? <laughs> These kind of, you know, so there is a lot of sort of identity discourse that comes out of it. There's a lot of, um, you know, there there's a lot of uh, the, the sort of weirder and more outre forms of feminism. And there's a lot of kind of exploration of like European, you know, the more radical and fringy elements even of European critical theory. Right. And so, you know, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I I I think a lot of interesting work came out of that program and its history. Um, it definitely, you know, is also I think there's always a double edged sword of this kind of institutionalization because it it sort of 
Um, it's it it. I mean, to be blunt, you know, it's it's often a a means of neutralization of these forces. I mean, the um, <clears throat> you know, the the the, uh, the example that I often think of is um, there was a similar thing that happened in the University of Paris um, that they created a new campus on the outskirts of Paris, and basically they they hired all of the big radicals of the period, you know, Foucault, Deleuze etc. Um, this is the Vincennes campus. Mm-hmm. And, and they, you know, it 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 was quite a fact. I mean, they this was, um, you know, a relatively conservative French government that did this. And it became clear kind of the people there that it was like deliberately sort of, first of all, you know, creating this magnet that would attract all the most radical students, but also would kind of suck them out of the city center into this relatively tranquil suburb. And thus, you know, make them less likely to cause trouble. And also that, you know, basically what happened was they all kind of concentrated their energies on, you know, um, you know, fomenting chaos like within the institution. So it it just became this kind of self-devouring mess. This is described very interestingly in Sherry Turkle's book about um, psychoanalytic politics. But it's it. So, you know, there was something of this going on in this whole period that one of the things you could do with these these radicals was you know basically um um co-opt them by bringing them into these institutions and then create these spaces where the the sort of radical agendas could be pursued in a way that was institutionally um you know that, that was subject to an institutional logic right so you you may have been a radical kind of bomb thrower before but now you need to like publish stuff to get tenure and you know, jump through all the hoops of the institution. Mm-hmm. So like it it's obvious that some of that was going on. Um so you know I think that's yeah, that that's an interesting part of this history. Obviously it brings a lot of stuff into the academy that wouldn't have really been um found there much before, but at the same time it kind of you know has this neutering kind of co-opting effect. Um yeah, I don't know if you have any other things any other intre- you know thoughts about like the history of of history of consciousness or any of the um, people there. Yeah, well, I mean, not people in particular necessarily. Um I honestly wasn't one of those people who was deeply invested in the history like there periodically we would have these departmental reviews where we'd have to go through the historical reviews of the past and create a new like sort of uh, assessment of the program. And I wasn't all that interested in, in in doing all of that. However, I will say that um, when I arrived at the program, in the program, there was this, I guess, cultural discourse, like a, you know, insular cultural discourse about the program that was complaining about how it sort of shifted to be a primarily Marxist department. Like there wasn't a lot of other uh, work being, uh, being made, created, whatever. Um, and that kind of was true. I understood why there are, the majority of the professors in the department were uh, doing political economy work. And there was this uh, push to admit people who were doing uh, other more interdisciplinary things in the traditional sense of what that means. Um, also more, I guess, queer theory or feminist studies. Um, but what happened instead uh, is that when we were running low on faculty, as seems to have been the historical trend of HisCon, um, they hired two people who were 
one was a Marxist and uh, his wife, Banu Bargu, she does biopolitics, but with a very heavily, I guess I would say, historical materialist bent. And she was very interested in creating a canon or required courses uh, for the department, which nobody really wanted. She was like, no, but you really do all have to know Hegel. And like, you know, of course, all of these new young uh, students, I don't know how I felt about it really upon reflecting but um they're like no this is not the spirit of his con and there are all these debates and uh banu bargu and max uh, tamba wanted to change our mission statement as it is on the uh, website and there's this big uproar uh, against the way that they were sort of trying to kind of intentionally and obviously shift the program into something that it was more recognizable as a discipline ish or like that would fall within the lines of regular cultural studies or I don't even know but it everyone was unhappy about it and now I think it's changing a little bit uh the students certainly are doing more interesting work but there aren't really that many people uh, in the in the faculty to advise them with that um but yeah that's what I'll say about that yeah that's interesting I mean it's in a way the opposite complaint of what you usually hear which is that there is you know or or um yeah, the the idea, or it depends on who you're listening to. Actually, I shouldn't I shouldn't say that, but um, you know, the idea that the sort of Marxist doing political economy would be the dominant force is relatively unusual in my the parts of the humanities that I've been in. Um, yeah. You know, they, they've largely been kind of sidelined in favor of more sort of intersectional stuff. Right. But um, so it's it's interesting that it became a holdout of that sort, especially because it has this history of, you know, not only I mean, the other person who kind of stands out as quite, you know, heavily anthologized and influential is uh, Gloria Ansaldua, right, of mm-hmm. uh, Borderlands, mm-hmm. La Frontera, you know, is kind of this like the premier sort of Chicana feminist theorist, um, you know, who writes in this, um, this code switching way. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I associate it with the, those kind of, you know, more, or, you know, often quite identity based um, figures, but um, it, it, it sounds as if it, it has shifted. Um, and interest, it's interesting to hear that the Mark, the Marxists managed to uh, kind of regain control. Which yes. <laughs> doesn't happened in that many places. Um so yeah, so I mean the other um I guess the other question for you to start is so what what point did you um what point did you come into the program? Was that I mean, since we're gonna get into the whole pandemic experience, was that um before or after the the initial onset of COVID? Oh, it was it was before. Um okay. I started in 2017. Okay. Um yeah, so I had a, a few years uh <laughs> A pre-pandemic life in the program um and i guess i mean i wasn't enjoying the program <laughs> very much uh to begin with I, i'm not so sure that that's exclusively the department's fault if you will um i was also experiencing a lot of alienation like socially and uh, i guess intellectually as well um i also wasn't <laughs> having uh or I wasn't receiving the feedback that I anticipated. And I felt quite, um, I guess, like an outsider in that capacity. I also was the second youngest person in the in the department. Uh, I went, I got, I attended this program just a year after I graduated my undergrad. So I didn't have a master's like most of these people. Uh, I was still very much in my kind of youthful uh, mindset about 
I think like social socializing and social life uh, was alienated by that. I also grew up in a in New York City and I went to Santa Cruz, which is a, a beautiful place, but I was really not used to uh, having little to do outside of school and only the people who I went to school with to do it with. Um, and so we were only talking about school most of the time. Um, but I mean, on an intellectual level, um, I guess I it started when I was, I guess, writing this paper about neoliberalism and I think that some of my critiques uh, of neoliberalism and the way that it was sort of manifesting within the academy itself were not received that positively. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about that. Uh, but I guess right before COVID began, um, uh, the history of consciousness and other graduate departments engaged in a wildcat strike. So we're all unionized. It's under uh, UA the UAW union. And it was uh, a strike that was meant to uh, increase our pay, but uh, specifically so that it matched uh, the cost of living for Santa Cruz. Um, and so this strike, I was participating in the strike for sure. You know, we were withholding our grades, essentially. Uh, we wouldn't submit grades. But then uh, slowly but surely, of course, the university began to retaliate. And they sent out letters saying, if you don't submit grades by this particular deadline, you will be fired. And it will be up to us to decide if you'll be employed again as a TA. And so our money that we made as TAs was the only money that we had, right? No one really had an extra job or anything like this. And I knew that I needed that money. And I was truly terrified about the prospect of just not having any source of income. Uh, and I also, at that point, still wanted to finish the degree. So I wasn't yet make, in that decision, uh, making that decision yet. So I ultimately, with a lot of, a lot <laughs> of anxiety, I flip-flopped. I talked to so many different people. I decided to turn the grades in. And this decision that I made really, really alienated me. So there were a bunch of people who were like, ride or die, we're going to withhold these grades. And this was obviously a political disagreement, but it very much felt as though it became personal, uh, with the exception of one student who actually is um, not only a, a PhD student, but a practicing psychotherapist with psychoanalytic methods. And before I even mentioned to him that I had submitted the grades, he wrote in our little group chat this very long psychoanalytically inflected uh, message about why some people would submit grades in, in the sense that uh, I mean, like, you know, saying like they might have grown up with particular traumas that make them feel that this is like going to throw them into a sense of precarity or this, that and the other thing. And I felt very seen by that. Uh, but nobody else in the chat responded to it at all. And so I, I, it was very clear that like they didn't care. It was just strike or not strike. Are you a scab or you're not a scab? And then COVID happened and I no longer was on campus. I wasn't attending any of the strike activities. I didn't live in Santa Cruz at that time. I, I lived in Oakland. So I physically was also alienated as well. And so it was just this whole thing. Uh, and then we can talk more about this later. Black Lives Matter stuff started happening. And so there was another giant political real thing that all of the graduate students were, I guess, engaged with or at least impacted by. But some of the discourses that were going on there, I felt uh, a little bit hesitant about as well. Yeah, so I'd say it's worth pausing on the um, the strike and so on, which is 
kind of fascinating. I mean, I, I've had my own experiences with sort of academic labor organizing uh, at a few different in a few different contexts. And, you know, something to be I mean, this is not a for people within academia, on particularly in the lower rungs of it, this is a totally banal point. But, you know, something that is is always worth noting, uh, particularly for anybody outside is that you have Within academia, you have all these, um, you know, ostensibly very radical professors, but um, they tend to be pretty conservative institutionally, and they often tend to dislike, uh, you know, student graduate student labor organizing. Um, not not always, but but often, and they they often tend to, um, you know, not necessarily want to be in unions themselves. Now, you know. It's it's a more mixed bag than that, but the the larger point I want to draw out of this is that you know academia is an extremely hierarchical institution, right? It's 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 sort of you know medieval in its structure. Um, you know, it I mean its major sort of political structures come out of a the Middle Ages and b like uh, Prussia basically. So <laughs> it tends to be extremely hierarchical. Um, there's a serious emphasis on rank. And people who, you know, make it to the prof- the full professor rank tend to really believe they got there because they deserved it. And, you know, whatever their ostensible egalitarian politics might be, they tend not to be that sympathetic to people below them and, in fact, seem very happy to exploit them when possible. And beyond that, um, they tend to... Um, how to put this? Basically... Um, they like to have a situation where they do as little work, you know, if if you're a professor, particularly once you've gotten tenure, you know, your incentives are to do as little teaching as possible. And when you teach to teach the stuff that's, that's closest to your specialization. And so that means you want to teach in a department that has graduate students for two reasons. One, because you can use them as TAs and two, because you can teach them graduate seminars, which often only have a handful of people in them. So it's not really that much grading. Also, they're more advanced and self-motivated students who have a lot of incentive to actually suck up to you, right? And do whatever you want them to do and uh, not complain about you because they need your approval to move on in the academic career. So, um, you know, these are all kind of relevant conditions that I experienced myself. Uh, coming up through grad school and later teaching in a kind of, um, you know, low, low status uh, position, you know, but full-time position for almost a decade. And, you know, basically uh, the, you know, one irony among, you know, particularly these more sort of ostensibly radical Marxist or, you know, whatever black uh, identitarian radical academics, et cetera, is that, you know, in order to make it in the system, you kind of have to buy into these status hierarchies. Mm-hmm. And and you tend to understandably, if you just think about incentives, you know, you tend to be protective of them. And so, you know, this is kind of one of the one of the ironies you come across. The most obvious example you often find as well, you know, when graduate students try to unionize, they're not really that um they're they're not really you know, greeted with open arms by most of these ostensible kind of radical egalitarian professors. But, you know, more broadly, it's just like they are incentivized to favor the continuation of a system that is pretty, that is pretty fucked for most people who participate in it. And, um, 
you know, that's why like even the the grad student unionization, totally, you know, reasonable thing to do. But it in some ways, the the problem with it, as I see it, is that it, you know, if to the extent that that the, that they win these um, these battles and win, you know, better situations, it, it really just perpetuates a system that's completely I mean, in the end, it it may simply perpetuate a system that's completely broken and that, um, you know, there, there are simply too few jobs for people with PhDs. And oh, yeah. so there's very little reason for most of these graduates, for most of these graduate programs to exist, because basically they exist so that the professors who have made it to the top can kind of have the cushy situation I described before, and so that the university can accrue prestige from them, but mm-hmm. for very little other reason. Yeah. And um, it's true that, I mean, I, I found it deeply hypocritical the way that professors were, uh, you know, specifically Marxist professors or any any leftist kind of professor was uh, either not participating in or not super sympathetic to the strike. Now, this there definitely were many who were, trust me, like there were people who came out to the picket, but they they were a handful. Right. Um, but more importantly, I, I sort of felt I felt like there was this big schism between what students were studying and writing about all of these like radical imaginaries and like, but, but, and I don't even like Marxist critiques of, of anything. I mean, it was, there was that and the writing was, was radical. It was great writing, but then the way that these people behaved or the, the values that they actually acted with were so contrary to the things that they wrote about. It felt so, so foolish to me. So like, Okay, so you're writing about like the hegemonic uh, university and like all of the ways in which its practices and rituals are symptoms of white supremacy and this, that, the other thing. But then you you do all of the things that you have to do. You're an excellent student. You aren't making any waves at all but beyond the strike. I'll give them that. But like you're going to this interview, you're uh, getting these grants, you're doing these things, and it's it ultimately all sort of is just this front where deep down everybody is out for themselves. They all want to get that tenure job or whatever it is and are therefore within the very thing that they've definitely been critiquing, at least verbally and in writing, but the practice is not matching up. Um, yeah. So that, that was something I, that really started to rub me wrong um, is that it was a lot of talk, not a lot of other things when it came to their daily lives. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, again, I think it goes back to this point I was making about co-optation that, you know, there, there is obviously a benefit in in being able to kind of co-opt people into this system um, and then have that be the place where you do this kind of radical critique. But it's in a practical sense, completely neutered because it, you know, if you if you abstract all the content of it, it really just functions as this kind of career advancement currency. And it doesn't really... Um, you know, it, it, and it doesn't do anything certainly within the, I mean, I, you know, I, I think the ironic thing is that the, um, the university has become sort of much more ruthlessly hierarchical and will, you know, t- tr- treat it, you know, and, and more, um, you know, in, uh, intense in the tendency to, um, you know, treat students as commodities, uh, you know, reduce everything to, to metrics and numbers and, you know, essentially, you know, the, this kind of process of corporatization has kind of gone hand in hand with the dominance of these um, these allegedly radical modes of thought in the humanities, right? They, they've kind of tended to be um, that, you know, if, if you trace the rise of like 
this, this sort of neoliberalization of the university, whether in terms of, you know, the massive expansion of, of administrators, you know, in comparison to, to faculty and students, um, whether in terms of, you know, the, the, the much more kind of commercial orientation um, that, that most elite universities have adopted, um, much greater emphasis on sort of branding and marketing, whether in terms of the, you know, again, kind of obsessive focus on sort of metrics and, and, um, and so on, you know, these are all tendencies that have kind of gone along with this, this, you know, the rise of like the tenured radical or whatever, right? This, the idea that, that, that you have all these professors in the humanities and social sciences who see themselves as like, revol- as who see what they're doing as revolutionary, right? So it's, it's a very odd, it's a very odd situation, right? I mean, I, I wrote something about this, not to get too deep into it, but like an example is, um, you know, Duke University, right, had this, this quite terrible, um, incident in which these lacrosse players were accused of sexual assaults. It became a kind of huge crusade to, to, um, expel them, which many of the most sort of radical faculty joined in. And, you know, anyway, I wrote, I wrote something about kind of a retrospective piece on this whole episode, but which happened 15 years ago. But, um, the other point that's kind of interesting is like Duke, you know, was on one hand known for being very wealthy, for mm-hmm. having um, a very wealthy student body and having, you know, and, and the centrality of the lacrosse team was important to that because lacrosse tends to be the sport played by, you know, quite, quite affluent um, kids. And at the same time, it was known for having this incredibly radical, like English faculty, right, that, um, you know, had all of these, these big name figures in the humanities teaching there. Um, and the English department and the literature department, which are separate, right? Um, you know, including Frederick Jameson, um, you know, who I like quite a lot as a writer, um, including Michael Hart, who wrote, uh, you know, uh, Empire and two other books with the, you know, former like Italian ter- sort of left wing terrorist Antonio Negri. Um, so, you know, these are, um, you know, so, so there's some kind of odd convergence of like this hyper-corporate, hyper-neoliberal university that's really heavily invested in just accumulating uh, wealth and prestige, but at the same time, that kind of brings in all of these in-house radicals. <laughs> so, so I think Duke is Duke is one good illustration of that tendency. Um, and that department in particular was very famous in the, in the like 90s for its, you know, theory orientation and its, um, you know, it, it, for having all of these, um, these, you know, figures who would be, you know, write these kind of weird, abstruse papers that would then get like made fun of in mainstream media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something, there's something about that, that, you know, and, and I think part of why it's worth going into this is like some of these ironies, I think, prefigure some of what happened with COVID. Um, yeah. Um, but, yeah. So maybe we should get into that. I mean, yeah, I, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, you, um, as I said, in I, spring of this year, 2022, organized this conference. Yes. So sort of two years into the whole affair. Um, so maybe if you could just kind of explain, you know, the process that that brought you to to um, to to do that. Um, and, you know, what your experience of this whole 
strange and dark episode in the history of American higher ed has has been. Yeah. So, I mean, at first when COVID happened, like many people, I didn't really, I didn't have a lot of um, thoughts about it other than, wow, this is crazy and it's happening. And I took it very seriously at the very beginning. Uh, even I got my vaccine. It was this whole thing. And then my school, like probably most other educational institutions required uh, both of these vaccines. Um, I did not feel that I needed to get the second one once I started to learn more about, you know, who is facing the most risk. And as a young person without an, any sort of pre-existing conditions, um, I, I felt as though, you know, I, I didn't need to get this vaccine. And I, I wasn't yet, and I don't even know really fully where I stand on like, okay, do I actually think this vaccine is harmful in the way that a lot of people say it is? I'm not sure. I, I think there's probably some validity to that for sure. But uh, at the time, I was just accepting what was going on. Uh, but what really started to bother me as time went on was the way that people were uh, treating those who had some skepticism and the hysteria with which people discussed the dangers uh, of COVID when they themselves were people who I just know, like they themselves were not very high uh, at risk. And there's been a lot of discussion about like, okay, so you're not that high at high risk, but uh, by being around others who might be, that's, you know, that's like a selfish action. I understand that. But um, if if masks work, right, I, I was like, if masks work, then I, I it shouldn't be so much of an issue. Uh, anyway, I, I started to just feel like there was a lot of hypocrisy in the same way that there was hypocrisy going on throughout all of academia when Trump was uh, in office, right? So like, sure, Trump is insane and most of the things that he said are horrible and I didn't you know, like him in any way, but people who did like him, right, were vilified to the extent that Trump was vilifying many other groups of people. And there was no attempt in the discourse about Trump and authoritarianism that was really he heavily prominent at my school, there wasn't really a, an attempt to address, I guess, the ways in which uh, Trump and people who liked Trump uh, were produced by a particular uh, political environment, a, a, yeah, a political environment, a cultural environment that was so, I guess, alienating to a Trump supporter type person and a political environment that really fucked with a large proportion of the population's uh, economic I guess, conditions or living conditions, you know, the increasing neoliberalization uh, that kind of made the South and other rural areas irrelevant, all of this anger, all of the ways in which identity politics that had been emerging for so long kind of um, rubbed these people the wrong way. And there was just no attempt to, to like look at that, to like see that as something that was worth looking at or worthy of sympathy. And so when COVID came around, it was right, this association uh, between people who were Trump supporters who didn't want to get the vaccine. Okay. Uh, and then that just became, oh, anti-vaxxer Trump supporter, like all in one, one title. Uh, and there was no, there was just no self-reflection about how perhaps when a government is handing down to you a gigantic mandate about what you should be doing with your body, where you should be going, um, that maybe we should be looking at that critically, like, right? Like what is the whole spirit of this department? We're supposed we have there's a long history of critiquing just exactly that. I took an entire course on biopolitics discussing all kinds of historical moments that the government has uh, mandated particular things, vaccines, whatever it is, uh, or health regimes, right? Uh, that are not, I guess, that were not uh, what they seem to be, I guess. And there was no discussion of this. And the moment that I would, it would either be dismissed or uh, I would be characterized unfairly, I guess. And um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty. So was this biopolitics seminar during COVID or was it prior to that that you? It was prior to that. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, I mean, so obviously we also had, I you know, it's, again, the the, the example I brought up was, or the, the, I think the key example in how all this unfolded was really a Gombin kind of coming out swinging at the beginning of 2020. And already at that point, which, I mean, to be honest, it, this sort of happened before the, the, the sort of uh, turn, you know, before the opinion, you know, established opinion had had sort of settled around, um, you know, being pro lockdown, pro prolonged mm-hmm. school closure, pro vaccine mandates and so on. Um, so, you know, in, in some ways, what was interesting was he was really repudiated even before, um, you know, largely by the academic left, even before kind of the average like normie lib was you know, whatever, bowing down to Fauci. So, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, um, it's it's kind of interesting to go back to that because it it um it suggests that there was some way that you know even before the the um the the sort of uh you know what you mentioned the polarization of of opinion around this had really had really set in. Um, there was already like a, a total unwillingness to to actually make, make use of these tools, which, I mean, to me, you know, my own, I mean, I've, I've written about this in a few places, but my own um, background was that when I was in graduate school, it was like towards the end of the sort of Bush administration when I went, when I first started. Um, so it was, you know, the, the war on terror was front and center um, on people's minds. And Agamben was like a hero at that point. Right. Um, and he was really making, again, pretty similar critiques, right? The like exaggerated risk assessments of certain threats, in that case, terrorism, later, you know, a sort of so-called biosecurity threat, um, you know, was was providing a carte blanche for this um, state of exception that could then, you know, suspend all norms and rights. And, you know, so so the argument was very much the same in both cases. Um, but you know, for various reasons, the the position switched. All the things that you were supposed to be critical of, in terms of, you know, um, the expansion of of state power, of surveillance, um, it, it during the two thousands became uh, became no longer, um, and, you know, not only you know, not only no longer fashionable, but but actively kind of um, discouraged and and even attacked when anybody tried to do it. Um, so this was, you know, I, I suppose the subject of my, uh, you know, most widely read piece on these issues, uh, specifically about, you know, it was called how we forgot Foucault. Right. And it was specifically just about how, you know, he, he very much was concerned with exactly this kind of flexing of power. And, uh, (laughs) yet it was really not, not considered permissible. And, I don't know, you know, I'm, do you have any, I mean, you, you are a student of psychoanalysis. Do you, do you have any sort of take on the, you know, not just the ideological factors, but the kind of um, psychic factors that, that might've occasioned this, um, this reaction and, you know, um, have, have kind of, um, 
you know, prepared the ground for for this sort of um, reaction, particularly among sort of academics on the left? Yeah, it's funny. I haven't I haven't thought about these things in a while, but it's um, so Jacques Lacan, uh, psychoanalyst, uh, famous for returning to Freud. Right. He, among many things, wrote uh, this theory, this theory of the four discourses. And now I, it would be really challenging for me to go into full detail here in a way that made sense uh, to many people. However, I'll just say there's the discourse of the university, the discourse of the hysteric, uh, the discourse, the master's discourse, and then um, what did I just say? Master's discourse, hysteric discourse. The, an- the analyst, right? And then the analyst, form. thank you. I was yeah. like, <laughs> always forget. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, the all four of these discourses, uh, of course, are, Lacan theorized them with these very complicated diagrams that like move in a certain way so that you go from one to the other, but that's really neither here nor there. Uh, the The main discourse I think that's operative uh, on the left and in academia specifically, which is not actually really the university discourse in many ways. I, I mean, I think the uh, professors, the institution itself, sure, but the students um, are very much participating uh, within the hysteric discourse. And the main question of, of the discourse of the hysteric is, is, is to uh, question and problematize the uh, master's discourse in a way that uh, is sort of self-fulfilling, right? So like they, uh, the question is like, uh, what is it? Tell me who I am or something like this. Um, and so I think the provocations that were made, the ostensible radical uh, movements that were going on with COVID, people thought that uh, the way that people were, um, I guess, not complying with masks, right? They were angry at that. They thought that they were speaking truth to power by saying like, you guys are endangering all of the other, uh, all of our community by spreading this vaccine. And I mean, spreading this disease around. And even prior to that, I think with the strike, right? Examples of all of this sort of like hysteric outcry, um, there was no self-awareness of the way in which that actually fed into the strength of the master discourse is all I'm saying. It was kind of a long-winded way. Uh, but the way that there is this feedback loop, because once you're recognized by the master, right? Once the master finally says, okay, I hear you about the strike or about whatever it is, then you are fully subsumed and are no longer this figure of, of rupture. Uh, and I guess this sort of reminds me of Lee Edelman's version of queer theory, which is also indebted to Lacanian psychoanalysis, right? So he says that the queer, the figure of the queer, at least, uh, is this sort of, uh, what would I say, like a kernel of unrepresentability and anything that seeks to be represented or, uh, I guess, assimilated or recognized at all is always already not queer in itself. Um, people were very angry at Lee Edelman for a number of reasons about this book and about this theory. Uh, but I always saw it operating really outside of the discourse of queer theory, but in the university, right? Like the way in which it's it's also similar to what we were talking about, about like co-optation of the radicals into the institution in general. So um, I guess, I guess that's where I would go psychoanalytically. And uh, Zizek has, has a lot of things to say, unfortunately, not about the COVID thing that I agree with, but in general about, the neoliberalization of the academy, the way that interdisciplinarity itself, to me, is a symptom of of a neoliberal uh, project. Um, it's like you can have it all, and we can make it your own, and it's going to be unique, and you can pick what flavor of soda you get at the McDonald's, and there's going to be so much, so many options. You know, the illusion of freedom, the illusion of of uh, uh, what you call, uh, yeah, the illusion of radicality, I suppose, uh, and how that always 
always sort of feeds into further, I guess, institutional or governmental power. Um, and no one sees that. I mean, even, even after the Black Lives Matter protests and all of the complaints there, the ways in which the response to that have often been, I guess, pure facades in their attempt to pacify the radical left, but that not only that, they have been insidiously, I guess, uh, supportive or like insidiously, uh, yeah, supportive of, of a master plan by the government to, to be, I guess, more uh, invasive in the lives and the politics of people, right? Um, anyway, I'm very much rambling at this point, so. No, no, <laughs> I, I think this point about, so I'll, I'll try to oversimplify one Mm -hmm. point that I think is key. Uh, you know, this this sort of uh, certain complementarity of the discourse of the master and the discourse of the hysteric is that yes. that kind of the idea that, you know, that so the hysteric is in some ways the figure of the protester or the figure of the the one who um, the one who objects or, as you said, problematizes or questions. And so, you know, the the um, I'm thinking here of like Freud's Dora case right, where part of the interpretation there is that Dora is on one hand sort of, I mean, Dora is the hysteric in this case, right, and she's sort of, um, you know, her complaint is that these men, like her father and this other man, um, have sort of, um, you know, in different ways kind of abused her, right, and so they function as the as the master, and, the, and that, you know, she's kind of, uh, her accusation towards the the father is that he's kind of allowed this family friend to, like, essentially sort of sexually exploit her. And so, but, but, you know, Freud's interpretation was very controversial among feminists is sort of that, you know, she is herself, like her entire position of protest is, is kind of re, you know, ultimately reinforces that or of complaints or objection kind of reinforces that power structure mm -hmm. in some way. And mm -hmm. so, so she's in it. And so of course this is accused of victim blaming and so on, but you know, I, I think whatever we make of how Freud, you know, I, I think there's there are reasonable criticisms of Freud's uh, treatment of Dora. But um, without getting into that, I think it's certainly true and you can see it a great deal in how the left uh, functions. You know, that there there's this kind of mutual enabling um, between the sort of more centrist, you know, whether it's university administrators and, you know, protesters of various sorts or whether it's like centrist Democrats and then the the sort of left flank of the party, you know, that there is this kind of mutual enabling relationship that underlies the seeming antagonism. And I mean, so, something that seems really interesting to me, though, as a shift that you're describing is like the in the earlier time. And, and this is, you know, to me, what's most important kind of about COVID in terms of sort of political economy and the way it shifts the position of the left is that you have in the in the previous 10 years after the war on terror everybody you know obama keeps drone bombing people and keeps gitmo open but nobody cares anymore except for like a few crazies uh, you know except for i mean when i say crazies i i mean that as a compliment um but you know nobody cares uh, because you know it's it's too inconvenient to criticize obama meanwhile everybody's suddenly everybody's suddenly interested in marxism again and, um, you know, after the 2008 crash. And so the big thing, the big project of the left is contesting austerity, right? That's the big problem of the left between 2008 and 2020. And the left's entire ethos really, I mean, okay, leaving aside the emergent kind of social movement around Black Lives Matter, that's a whole, you know, that's another thing we'd have to contend with. 
because that starts around 2014. But, um, you know, and the and the increasing racialization of of all politics. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the left, you know, as it comes out of sort of Occupy and so on, its concern is really with contesting austerity. So like your graduate student strike that you participated in would be one manifestation of that, um, you know, various kinds of things that fed into the Bernie Sanders campaign um, and similar kind of left populist movements abroad. And so the really big thing was to say, was to demand, um, you know, a restoration of like the more generous kind of social compact of the, um, of the late 20th century, right? Uh, you know, whether that's like better funding for universities or, uh, you know, a, a more generous welfare state or whatever. And so then, you know, with COVID, so so that, you know, there, there's kind of that relationship between like the hysteric and the master. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then I think it does shift for, you know, simultaneously, because on one hand, suddenly COVID, you know, all the spigots that were half closed in the era of sort of neoliberal austerity are suddenly open. You know, there's sort of this, we'll give you all the money you want, just stay home sort of attitude on the part of power for reasons that, you know, would probably be too distracting to get into, but I think have to do with sort of deeper crises of, of capitalism. But then, you know, so, so suddenly, you know, there's this immense show of, of, of financial largesse, right. On the part of power, um, austerity seems to be a thing of the past. Um, this has already started in 2019, in, in the UK, when the conserv- new conservative or the re- the strengthened conservative government basically, you know, ditches austerity wholesale, um, and you know, sets out to co-opt um, the the populist left on that flank, um, and so you know, what you get is you can't complain about the government not being generous enough. And so instead you actually complain, the shift is like, you actually complain about the government not being harsh enough. So, (laughs) so suddenly instead of demanding, you know, that, that, um, you know, daddy increase your allowance, you, you sort of demand that daddy like lock you in your room and, you know, um, I don't know, (laughs) like that, that the (laughs) teacher, that the teacher give you like longer detention or something. It's, it's very odd. So there's this, you know, just in terms of this like master hysteric, like parent child dynamic, yeah. there's this weird switch where like, there's this switch from a demand for, for generosity to a demand for a kind of harshness, but which is, which is seen as a kind of life or death necessity. Right. Um, that, that is, it's, it's a demand for protection. Right. And so yeah. um, the threat is no longer being unable to, sustain yourself it's it's you know being exposed to this um vector of contagion and so you you demand to be um protected from it from above and so it's you know so that's a very interesting switch even though i think the structure remains remains similar um the 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 content of the demand really shifts yes and i was just gonna say like i think it's always within the discourse of the hysteric and the hysteric position it, it always contains uh, what I would call like, yeah, that masochistic element, I think always, because the hysteric thinks that they're happy once they quote unquote get what they want. But the whole like lifeblood of, of the hysteric position 
is dissatisfaction. Uh, never, you know, not getting what they want is actually what makes them happy. They don't realize that there's a jouissance or enjoyment in dissatisfaction that drives that whole discourse. And uh, it reminds me a lot about of uh, the self-flagellation that goes on or did really go on at the beginning of Black Lives Matter about like white privilege and like, I need to like, what's that book again that I'm, um, like it was this book that was specifically like for white people to read about like how to unpack their privilege. What was this book? Oh my gosh, it doesn't really matter. It'll come to me. Was it white supremacy and me or? No, it's that it one wasn't... that's now taught in like <clears throat> corporate environments and stuff. Uh, not white fragility or? Yes, white fragility. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So like there's this, that I think there is a really good example of this desire to uh, to be restricted um, or not restricted, to be punished, I suppose. Uh, or yeah, to take daddy's beating. Um, and I know not everybody on the left by any means is always are white, but I think that it just speaks to this very interesting hysterical dynamic uh, and this very gross moralization of particular behaviors, like wearing a mask or like, I don't even know. There's, there's too many to even count. Um, and I guess I wanted to add that like, during my entire grad program, like from the very beginning, I was pretty against identity politics um, and the way that they are, I think, terribly uh, delusional in the, in the assessment of disparity and the way in which they actually foster uh, or are always co-opted into like neoliberal cultural products and are always deployed uh, by the government eventually like it reminds me of the cia ad that said like i i don't even know what this woman said but she was a woman of color and it was just so it was such an obvious example of the ways in which power will use the very language that you thought you, you were using to critique them and it will use it to uh, further strengthen its its grasp but so i was always very critical of, of identity politics and some people were a bit but it was always this kind of very touchy topic that wasn't fully uh, discussed. And as a white person, it felt as though like I could not really make this critique without being further criticized uh, at, just for, for being a white person talking about it. Um, and yeah, so that that fed into uh, a lot of my discontentment. It's like the hypocrisy, the way in which, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really just the hypocrisy on all grounds. But yeah, identity politics, COVID, uh, the strike, it was all, they're all characterized by the same sort of moralistic vitriol towards those who they think have the wrong political opinion. Uh, and they, once COVID came along, that was not only just moralized, but it was like, oh, you're killing people because you aren't wearing a mask or whatever it is. Um, I had this conversation with an anarchist that I followed on uh, Instagram who had this whole argument that not wearing a mask or not getting vaccinated was this great ableist crime. Uh, and I mean, even today, I think she's still talking about this, which I find insane. Uh, but she made this post that said the the lifting of the mandate of the lifting of the mask mandate was an example of like fascism. <laughs> and I was like, how is lifting a mandate an example of like, what are you talking about? Like, if I'm, and I'm not the type of person who throws around fascism like all of the libs do because it's ridiculous. None of the things we're experiencing are fascism. You need to calm down. But, you know, it's just this perversion of perspective um, in general that gets me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the anarchists have often been the most uh, the mm -hmm. most extreme in their, you know, I, th I think I saw like some video of 
Antifa like attacking people who were protesting against a mask mandate somewhere. And it was like, oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, but, you know, this, you know, so obviously like all this. The, the intensification of identity politics in 2020 within the academy, it went alongside with COVID, right? And it, it was kind of infused with the same emergency spirit, right? Of, you know, it's, you, you must, and I think, you know, part of what was interesting with the response to like Agamben's interventions and, you know, I, I often found there was kind of this attitude of like, yes, well, we know that we're supposed to be critical of power, but like, we can't do that now because this is, and so it's, it is the state of exception, right? We can't do that now because this is a moment of exception, right? This, this particular virus is something exceptional. So it stands outside of, of the, the normal frameworks in which we're supposed to try to make sense of the world. And so that, that sort of suspension of, of like rational scrutiny of the situation, I think then extended to, you know, the, the, the political events that occurred later in the year, there was kind of this, I mean, there really was this like flowering of just a bizarre, like almost willfully irrationality, I think. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, just, um, I remember even, I mean, at, you know, faculty meetings I attended sort of that year just became like truly bizarre. And I mean, I know other people who that, and not even necessarily struggle session bizarre, but bizarre in the sense of becoming these kind of like confessional, like meditation sessions where everybody was supposed to, I mean, you weren't, you know, everything became a kind of self-help. It was, it was very, very odd. And, and it really, um, it, it felt just like this massive kind of self, you know, self neutering of like the critical faculties. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, it's, it's still just, and and I don't, you know, I, I don't really see much recovery from it. <laughs> so no, I, uh it all it all to me goes back to that famous uh Mark Fisher, I guess, essay, uh, exiting the vampire castle, um, which the vampire's castle is is the, the academy essentially. And it was a pretty early critique of uh, I guess what we're discussing. It was in 2013. So pretty, pretty incisive there. Uh, and of course, I brought this article up and it was always, uh, well, not always, it was often, um, I guess, criticized or demeaned. Uh, of course, it was too focused on class, right? Um, I, you know, it, it, yeah, it's a good, it's a good read. I don't want to just tell you what it's about because I'm sure many people uh, at least somewhat know about it, but um, I, I suggest that. And um, it, it also reminds me of uh, when I would, I was reading a lot of Adolf Reed, right? He's a black Marxist scholar, a very notoriously critical of uh, black identitarianism. And uh, there's no, there was almost no person who I could find who really liked what he had to say. Um, And just a little tidbit about something that happened to him. He was invited to speak at some DSA, I think Philadelphia, but then was, uh, I guess, swiftly uh, removed from that sp- that speaking situation because they claimed that he was actually racist. And this was like within the time following a lot of the Black Lives Matter uh, stuff. So the way in which like <laughs> there is this exclusionary, um, it, yeah, very much an exclusionary practice uh, that outlaws particular discourses, does not allow them to emerge uh, because they don't comply with whatever the general um, 
I guess, dogma is of the left. Like this, the left used to be the space where there was a, at least a diversity of opinion. And now I think it's actually probably the most hegemonic uh, political sphere, specifically in the academy. Uh, it's unfortunate. And so that's kind of why I did the conference, right? So like, I guess that's the next uh, thing to talk about. Yeah, today. I was just going to say, uh, so there there are these forbidden discourses. And uh, so you decided to uh, publicly sort of violate these taboos and, um, you know, invite others to to join you in doing so. So yeah, what was, how was that experience? Uh, you know, what, what reactions did it provoke? What fallout did you face, if any? Yeah. So um, I guess what started this all is I just ran, I tweeted one day, I was like, I cannot believe there hasn't been a single academic discussion or conference about COVID as it relates to broader concerns uh, about politics, the body, everything, like government control. And the person that ended up co-organizing this conference with me, Jonas Weaver, who's a PhD student at UC Irvine, uh, who followed me was just like, why don't, why don't you do it? Or like, why don't we do it? And I was like, huh, okay. I like never, you know, I am a a, a person who doesn't always realize that I have an like agency to make things like that happen. So I did that with him. What we did is we drafted a call for papers, uh, decided on the name, which at this point, I can't even remember the whole thing, but uh, what was it again? Inoculate society. That's right. Inoculate society, COVID biopolitics and something else. Uh, and so we drafted that and we knew it was just going to be, you know, we're just graduate students. So we knew that there was going to be some issue with disseminating it as widely as maybe we would have liked, but we did upload it to the call for papers like website, distributed it throughout our departments. But, um, you know, they always kind of require uh, some kind of institutional um, sponsorship, you know, whether or not that takes the form of money or not. But my department asked me to take it down <laughs> and they said that they would not sponsor it despite the very academically like legitimate uh, rhetoric that was in this call for papers. This was not this was not even slightly seeming as though we were like we secretly love Trump and we're like doing that that kind of thing like nothing at all. Um, and I asked for a reason why why this was not going to be sponsored financially or just in spirit. They wouldn't even disseminate this, right? They wouldn't even email the thing out. Uh, and they they just said, well, we don't really have enough money and like, we just can't. And then he wouldn't answer. I said, but like, I don't know. They just wouldn't answer. It was very clear they were afraid of articulating to me a political opposition to the idea of these questions being raised. Um, so it was essentially very much uh, ignored and not only by the faculty, but by my fellow grad students. I think one, I sent it to our um, departmental chat. I think one person said like, congratulations, or this is cool. Everybody else ignored it. Uh, and at a later point, uh, you know, we got a bunch of people who were interested. We got a lot of people who were thankful that this this thing was going to take place. And um, I remember listening to uh, Mark Crispin Miller, our keynote speaker on a podcast on Red Scare, of course, where he described his really upsetting situation at NYU, where as a result of teaching uh, I guess the varied responses to, or not responses, the varied scientific opinions on the effectivity of masks. And he's teaching a propaganda course, right? So you're supposed to look at all of the different perspectives about a particular issue. And this one student apparently tweeted about this and accused him of not only, I don't know, saying you shouldn't wear a mask, which he never 
said what you should do, right? She accused him of that and a number of other cardinal leftist sins, like being anti-trans or like, I don't know, a, a host of things. And NYU took it seriously and uh, kind of started the smear campaign against him. And eventually, to make a long story very short, he was barred from ever teaching the propaganda course again, a course that he had taught for 25 years and had written numerous books on. Um, so I emailed him. I was like, and I was obsessed with that podcast episode. I emailed him. I was like, I'm doing this. Here's this thing. Here's the call for papers. Would you be interested in speaking? And we'll see if we can get you some money. And he replied immediately and said yes. Um, and so I, when I added that to the call for papers, hoping that that would come across as having some sem more semblance of uh, legitimacy for these people in my department and elsewhere. And um, nope, it didn't change it at all. And I'm sure they think he's an insane nut job anyway, which so it probably only... Uh, worsened my case but yeah like we got it was really wonderful and I was really proud to have such an incredible discussion uh, like you said from a variety of different viewpoints um and you know it's a shame it's a shame that people wouldn't even open themselves up to what I think is just like standard protocol as a leftist academic person even if you're not like leftist in the kind of <laughs> perverse way that is accepted now like I don't know why there wouldn't be I don't know just willingness there yeah I, I mean and again it it's um it was in in itself it was an encouraging experience um just because there was very productive discussion again it wasn't it wasn't that everybody was um aligned on what exactly the response to COVID should have been. It was just that everybody was willing to have the discussion. I think there were some people who were, you know, relatively supportive of the kind of standard array of policies, but, you know, were, were at least willing to kind of think about them critically in terms of, you know, certain theoretical frameworks. And, um, you know, some were quite um, resoundingly in the opposite camp, but it was the kind of discussion you would you would want to have right among these sorts of um, on these sorts of topics um and so you know i i think on some level it was an encouraging i mean it, it was an encouraging experience in and of itself but you know perhaps to begin to wrap things up um you know, you chose to leave your program, I think, around that time or shortly after, as I understand. And, um, you know, what are, what's your sense of the prospects for this kind of, you know, more critical discourse about these things um, inside or outside of institutions? And, you know, to what extent did that whole experience kind of um, prompt your, your decision to uh, not continue in the the academic sphere? Um, well, I think that the there are, a, or there is a growing number of people who are critical about many parts of the left that I was long, long uh, dissatisfied with. And I'm talking here about like uh, identity politics, right? Like criti being critical of that is, is has expanded a lot. I think there's a lot uh, of people who formerly were really big fans of it that aren't anymore. And I think that there is, a lot more going on that is critical of like kind of reflexive liberal feminism stuff like me too and like all of that but i think that when it comes to covid that that is something that i really think will take a very very long time uh to be treated with the same sort of critical eye or like the way that it's been responded to and i mean on the left and in academia specifically um 
horse on the right. There's plenty. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I don't really have that much hope for uh, the Academy and, and the way that it, it discusses things like this, because it's just it actually sort of has been the way that it has been for a long time, for decades. Right. Like, I think that it's sort of it has to, I think the permanence that I am foreseeing here has to do really with the discourse of the hysteric. Right. Like as long as it is a hysterical engagement with knowledge and uh, asking questions, it's always going to be sort of reactionary in uh it's like affect or practice. Um, like, yeah, I don't know. I I, I remember uh, shortly after this conference, I was in my graduate chat at some point and uh, this girl said that she had COVID and that's why she didn't respond. But she was like, well, not that you believe in, in that. And I was like, I believe in COVID exists. Also, do you what you believe in COVID? Like, is it some kind of idol for you? But um, no. So I think that, yeah, I was willfully mischaracterized, I think, in that situation. And I think that for a very long time, that will be the case because of the way that the left orients itself so strongly against what they call like these crazy Trumpers. And so as long as a crazy Trumper to them is also somebody who doesn't wear a mask or doesn't want to get vaccinated, anybody else who possesses those qualities or opinions will sort of be lumped in. And uh, they'll. I have no hope that they'll listen to a Trumper about anything with any degree of seriousness either. Um, but anyway, uh, I left. Yeah, I got my master's in June. Um, I'm, I actually just applied to law school. <laughs> and I'm very, very happy about that. It's it's actually something where I think my natural skills lie, that it's no, it's not uh, up in fantasy land in terms of its practical impact. And I, I think it's very important. Um, so I'm excited by that. And I, yeah, it was a long road to discovering that I would leave. First, I was not happy with my progress and I was procrastinating a whole ton, was feeling insecure about my own like intellectual capacity, but that was foolish. And then I, you know, I felt very alienated politically, uh, socially, and it, I began feeling basically resentment for the whole entire, the whole entire institution. Um, and all of those forces combined, like that I've discussed with you today. <laughs> and I made a really big, tough decision, but I'm absolutely thrilled. And I hope that more voices like Mark Crispin Miller's uh, or any of the other people who participated in our conference, they they actually get more uh, platforms or spaces to to talk about these things. But I, I uh, I'm not so sure <laughs> that we'll see that for a while. Yeah, and I think you know your your experience as well as mine suggests that the the past couple of years have been sort of decisive, and I think you know alienating people who are already kind of on the fence about this whole system and, you know, pushing them out. And, you know, there, there are some things to be regretted about that, but um, unfortunately I, I think there's a lot that's not really worth saving about academia as it currently exists. And so I'm not, I'm not particularly, yeah. you know, I, I, and as I said before, a lot of these graduate programs, you know, they, they in many ways they shouldn't exist because they're really, um, leading people into a sort of dead end path because the the universities are simply cutting back jobs in all these fields and are not going to they oh, they're that they simply are not going to find full time employment and so it's there's something just kind of cruel and exploitative about the whole system and beyond that 
um, yeah, I think there, there's just, uh, there's a kind of, um, self, uh, yeah, there, there's this kind of self-destructive spiral that I think a lot of it is caught in. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I wrote a piece called, um, social justice austerity and the humanities death spiral. And, you know, the argument was essentially that a lot of these, you know, what, what you see with a lot of these kind of social justice movements, but I think also with the COVID stuff where, you know, it's, it's just clear to anybody who's experienced the stuff that like, I mean, doing uh, classes day in and day out on zoom is, is awful and people hate it. Um, and and it, it just doesn't work as a, and, and so the fact that so many academics and sort of, you know, leftists within the academy, students and academics like demanded the continuation of this is just very self-destructive because most people are going to not continue um, paying for college if that's if that's mm -hmm. what it looks like. Um, and so that's just like a basic bottom line issue. But, you know, more broadly, you have these like weird things happening in certain fields where like the person who gets elevated to the top of the field is like somebody who says, oh, this field is systematically and, um, you know, foundationally racist. And so it needs to be dismantled. So there's this kind of nice symbiosis where like a lot of these humanities fields, like the universities don't have much use for them anyway. So they're like, oh, so you think that this field should be dismantled too. Okay, great. So we yeah. agree. Um, so, so it's like it, it, I mean, I think in some ways they're, they're sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the radicals um, who are being elevated are, are unwittingly kind of doing the work of, uh, of just dismantling, you know, the, the fields and programs in which they, they're operating. And it's all just part of this generalized sort of death spiral of the whole system. <laughs> so, which isn't, I mean, which isn't to say it's all going to go away. Um, I think, you know, I, I, but I think that there's a huge amount of sort of um, there's a huge amount of it that is increasingly kind of um, just spiraling into yeah. this um, self-destructive dynamic that I don't think it's going to recover from. No. Yeah. It's delusional. Like I, I'm even with the strike recently or the current strike, there was this, this post uh, that said, you know, like, okay, fine. Like, what if we get our, our cost of living adjustment, but we're still working for the university. And I'm like, well, why don't you just quit? What is, what's happened? And these people weren't quitting. So I, it's like, there's this like constant, insistent critique, <laughs> right. The, of the thing you're participating in, but no, no desire to leave the very thing. And so it, it it's clear, it's like so performative. And that's what I'll say. I think it's, it's delusional. <laughs> yeah. So I think we can we can wrap things up on that cheerful or non-cheerful note, depending on what your attitude is towards all of these things. Um, but obviously I, I wish you well in your uh pursuits outside of academia. And I will say, you know, my own experience has been, you know, on on tw on Twitter and other platforms and elsewhere, they're, you know, even though they're they're very fucked up in a lot of ways, like, you know, there are some interesting um opportunities for intellectual dialogue and um you know i continue you know i will continue to uh engage with these issues myself even though i'm i'm currently um disaffiliated from academia much to my relief um and i hope perhaps you will as well since you've um you've already uh, contributed some very significant things to um you know re-enlivening uh 
public discourse on these issues Thank recently. You. So thank you yes great i mean twitter's the spot so <laughs> all right well i will i will put your um handle in the show notes so people can follow you awesome and um yeah thanks for taking the time to talk thank you so much